Many of you know that um, Jan and I have our kids here that also attend Rock Hills. Many of you know Mike and Lorena, and over the past nine months, you've probably noticed she's been getting quite a bit bigger. And last Wednesday, she delivered our second grandchild, Amelia Catherine. Um, And because you are a captive audience and because I'm a proud grandpa, I'm going to subject you to the proud grandpa moment. This is our grandson, Joshua, and our new uh, granddaughter, Amelia Catherine. Now, I'm not taking flagrant advantage of my speaking position to do the proud grandpa thing. This is actually going to connect to our message. You see, I never realized how long nine months was until my daughter got pregnant. And I can't even imagine what it was like for her. The first trimester, all that morning sickness, second trimester, all the fatigue and everything else that goes with it. And then as the baby starts to get closer, that last trimester, difficulty sleeping, the back pain, just finding a comfortable position. There were many times over the last couple of months as as Lorena got so large that she would move and literally groan. And I think... We can all relate to that. Even if you're a woman who's never had a child, even if you're a guy, there's something that resonates about that journey, that nine-month journey, as a woman begins to get ready to deliver that child. There's a groaning, an anticipation, a longing. And really, this is what Solomon was talking about. Solomon uh, was the son of King David, and Solomon wrote one of my favorite books of the Bible because I can, I can relate to it so deeply. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Now Solomon, at one point in his journey, God came to him and said, I'll give you anything. What do you want? And Solomon said, I want wisdom. And so God basically said, wow, that's such an amazing answer. I'm going to give, make you the wisest man who ever walked the earth. I'm also going to make you the wealthiest man that ever walked the earth. Now reflect on that for a minute. He was the most powerful man of the most powerful country on the face of this planet. He had great wealth. He actually had 400 wives and 600 concubines. And he writes this book called Ecclesiastes. And in that book, the reason I can relate to it so deeply is he says, I've tried the pleasures of my many wives and mistresses. I've tried the pleasures of good wine and other substances. I've tried the pleasures, all the pleasures that wealth can purchase for me. I've experienced wisdom and knowledge beyond any man. And it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. In a very poetic way, Solomon puts it in Ecclesiastes 3. He says, but the reason for that is God has placed eternity in my heart. And what he's really saying there, folks, is that we have this longing. No matter what you have on this earth, no matter the wealth, no matter the wisdom, we have a longing that God placed in our heart. This longing for something else. We have this sense, everyone does, that as we go through this journey, there has to be something more. And so that something, that anticipation, that groaning for something is what we're going to talk about today. So let's start with a word of prayer. Father, I believe that you put that longing in our heart, that eternity in our heart, as a longing for you and for a relationship with you. And and because I believe that so deeply, 
I feel at this moment so strongly that my friends here at Rock Hills, they don't need to hear from me, Father. They need to hear from you. So, Father, please, would, would you speak and let me get out of the way so that your words and your truth can go forth and accomplish what you desire in the hearts and lives of my friends here at Rock Hills. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as Adam pointed out, we're beginning a new series called Anticipation, Experiencing the Wonder in Waiting. You see, we thought about this as as a leadership team at Rock Hills, and we reflected on this truth. We believe as Christians that a little over 2,000 years ago, the pivotal moment in the entire universe occurred on this planet when Jesus was born. What's interesting is that even historians and philosophers and anthropologists seem to indirectly affirm that because all human history is measured by that one event. Everything before the birth of Christ is called B.C. Everything after the birth of Christ is A.D., 2016 A.D., which means Anno Domini, In the year of our Lord. We are living in 2016, 2016 years after the year of our Lord. And for centuries, Christians have understood that that moment on which all the universe pivots is worth reflecting on. And so centuries ago, a tradition began in the Christian faith of Advent. The last four weeks, essentially taking the time out to reflect on this moment, to contemplate and and to set our heart, to anticipate and prepare our heart. Let every heart prepare him room for that moment when we celebrate the day that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came onto this earth in the form of a man. And so that's what we're doing here. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be teaching about that. As Adam said, if you will just go to the Rock Hills Facebook page and like the page, you'll get that anticipation advent each day in your Facebook feed. will show up just a word to help you reflect on the reason for the season. Look, this is harder than ever in 21st century, isn't it? With... You know, they didn't, in, for centuries, they didn't have Black Monday and, or Black Friday and Cyber Monday and Christmas card lists to put out and, and company Christmas parties and everything that takes up our time. And so we're trying to help you to use social media to help you remember the reason for the season and prepare your heart for the coming of Jesus. And so for the next four weeks, our messages are going to be about that, about the anticipation of that momentous day. And today, I'm going to be talking about the anticipation of Jesus since the beginning of human history. The very beginning of that anticipation. And it begins, of course, in Genesis. And if you have your Bibles or your devices, I'd encourage you to go there. And let me give you the background. You know much of this. So God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates Adam and Eve. He creates this paradise for them to live in. And they are in the perfect setting. They have perfect relationship with God. Unconditional, satisfying love. They have a perfect relationship with each other. No strife, no frustration, no selfishness. Work for Adam is satisfying. It's a blessing from God to go out and subdue the garden. And it's satisfying and rich. And everything is perfect. And then something happens. 
Because one of the many kinds of beings, the, you know, it's not an animal, it's, it's not a human, but God created spiritual beings. And one of them, called Satan in the Bible, rebels. And he becomes the king of all the other rebels against God. And Satan comes down, according to the Bible, into the garden and tempts Adam and Eve. And they eat of the apple that he tempts them with in violation of God's law. What they have done is they have committed cosmic treason. The king of the universe has given them one rule, and they become traitors. They betray him. And what we see for the first time, the realities that God has woven into the universe, that if you obey him, if you follow his wonderful, blessed guidelines, you will be blessed. But if you disobey him, if you violate his guidelines then tragic things happen. Pain and suffering and longing and groaning come into the world for the first time. And let's read about that in Genesis 3, uh, beginning at verse 14. And this is what the, the word says. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, there are several curses that come in at this time. We're just reading one of them. It's for the, the serpent. And what God is saying is, yes, you've won this battle. You tempted them, and they fell for your temptation. But here's my prediction. Here's my prophecy. There will be a day when the offspring of the woman crushes your head, defeats you. In the meantime, you will bruise his heel. You will have some victories, some small victories in small battles. But ultimately, I am going to prevail through the offspring of the woman. And of course, that prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes and does crush the serpent's head. And the serpent does bruise his heel. He is crucified. But this is the first moment when it's anticipated that there's going to be deliverance. And and I can imagine Eve, who actually experienced paradise, experienced perfection. They're cast out of the garden. And she becomes pregnant with Cain. And remembering this prophecy, I just sense during her pregnancy, she's groaning and saying, maybe this is the offspring that will crush the serpent's head and things will be made right and we'll be back in that perfect relationship. But it wasn't meant to be, was it? Because Cain himself had a younger brother, Abel. Then Cain was seduced to the dark side and actually murdered Abel. And Eve died never seeing this prophecy fulfilled, never seeing the deliverance, never seeing the end to her groaning. Throughout the Old Testament and throughout Jewish literature, it becomes really clear that every time a woman got pregnant, one of her prayers was, this, Lord, let this be the Messiah. Let this be the baby that delivers us, that crushes the serpent's head, that restores our relationship to you. And that continues on for centuries and centuries and centuries. And throughout those centuries, through the various prophets, God is continuing to give his people hope as they groan for their redemption, as they groan to have their relationship restored. One of the famous ones is out of Isaiah. You probably know Isaiah 7, 14, where it says, and God will give 
them a sign. A virgin will be with child, and he shall be called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. But don't forget that was centuries and centuries and centuries from the time of Adam and Eve. And then God continues to give his people hope. He continues to say in the Old Testament, don't give up. My promise will become true. Now let's fast forward 700 years to the Gospel of Matthew. And you see, finally, the Messiah is born. And just a few years later, just so you understand this, where where this groaning is coming from, a few years after the Messiah is born, Paul writes in the book of Romans, and I think we have those, those verses here. And Paul is talking about this longing in our heart, this, this desire, this groaning to be restored to our relationship. And he says this, We know, this is Romans 8, 22 and 23, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons or redemption of our body. And so that's what this groaning has been about. That's why we relate to the woman who's pregnant. That's what this whole centuries and centuries of waiting has been about, the anticipation. And so finally, Messiah comes. And there's four Gospels. There's four descriptions of the life of Jesus. We're going to be looking at Matthew. And most of us like to think of the Christmas story, you know, there's, there's a stable, and, and Mary gives birth in this just sort of beautiful setting. It's, it's kind of pastoral and, and uh, serene, and the shepherds come, and they give good tidings of comfort and joy, and there's a beautiful star shining. But we forget there was a dark side to this also, and that's actually what we're going to be talking about today. Because what was going on at this time, there was an evil man, another, another member of the force of evil, Herod. And he's in charge of Israel. The Roman people who, who ruled the world put Herod in charge, King Herod. And Herod had been hearing rumors about a coming king. You have to understand that back in this day, any rumors of another king was a threat to the king in power. They were ruthless if they heard about anybody with aspirations to the throne. They would do away with them. So Herod is hearing these rumors. Meanwhile, over in Persia, there are some guys we call wise men or or magi. They're really sort of astrologers, quasi-astronomers. And their reading of the stars were, hey, there's this powerful king that's being born. They follow the star. They get to Israel because they're looking for this powerful king to pay homage And what they do when they get to Israel is they know they have to give their respects to King Herod and say, meet with King Herod. And he says, why are you here? They say, oh, reading of the stars, we believe that a great king is being born. And now Herod is really furious, but he keeps his cool. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, when you find him, tell me because I want to go worship him. Well, that wasn't his plan at all, of course. And so the Magi, ultimately, they do find Jesus. They give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But somewhere along the line, they're tipped off. And they leave Israel without going back and telling Herod where Jesus is. 
And that's where we pick up the story in Matthew. And this is Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 and following. And it goes like this. When they had gone, that's the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he had stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew is pointing out a prophecy here. That prophecy came out of the prophet Hosea, the book of Hosea in the Bible. And he continues on. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Another prophecy, Jeremiah. So you see, all through the hundreds of years of waiting, God God continues to encourage his people, I am not forgetting my promises. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But what he heard But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene, another prophecy out of the book of Isaiah. So we have all these prophecies. And Matthew, who's a Jew, is wanting everyone to know, this is the one. This is he who has been prophesied from the beginning, from the time of the Garden of Eden. This is the Messiah. But they had one thing wrong. You see, they thought when Jesus came, he was going to end the darkness, that it was all going to be restored. They thought he was going to come as this great conquering king, and that was going to usher in paradise. Messiah did come, but he didn't end the darkness. He came as a light in the darkness. And if you are a Christian, if you, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you have a choice between now and the time you go to be with your father. And that is, do you want to live in the darkness or live in the light? Because the darkness is not completely ended. When you obey the guidelines that your loving Father put forth, you live in the light. When you disobey, you live in the darkness. The second thing I want to point out is that if you look at this closely, everything God does seems to be opposite of what we expected. He does it in such an unexpected way. You see, what the Jews were expecting was probably somebody from a great line of kings and, and learned people and, and conquering heroes, someone who had a pedigree. And he was almost certainly going to come out of Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the powerful city. And this is the mindset of most people throughout human history. It's still the mindset in America today. 
If I asked you what are the greatest cities, the most influential cities in all of America, if I asked that of a number of people, some people would say, well, New York, you know, that's the financial center. We have Wall Street. What happens there in our financial center has a powerful influence on everything that happens in our economy. Some people might say, well, L.A., you know, that has a powerful impact on our culture. All the movies and, and all the television shows and the recording industry are sent, seem to be centered in L.A. Some people might say, well, Washington, D.C., it's, it's where the seat of our government, and our, our government is the most powerful in, influence in our life. If you're talking Texas, of course, they're going to say Dallas and Houston and Austin and San Antonio. Not long ago, a couple years back, I was driving north of of Austin, and I drove through a town called Oatmeal, Texas. And I was like, really? And, and so I got home, and I Googled it, and the, 20, and the 2000 census said there was 20 people in Oatmeal, Texas. And then I look at the 2010 census, and it says about the same. And I'm like, wait, there's only 20 people? You can't count exactly? You have to say about the same? But my point is, we don't all keep our ear to what's going on in Oatmeal, Texas. It's like, oh, we got to keep our eye on Oatmeal and see what's happening there because that's going to impact our life. We don't do that. And Jesus, through the way God ordained the events, it, Joseph may have been headed to Jerusalem. He may have thought, well, I'm a carpenter. That's where the work is going to be. But when he heard Archelaus was still there, he went to this little podunk town, this backwater called Nazareth. And Nazareth was as far off the beaten trail as you could get. You may remember in the book of John, Philip has become an apostle of Jesus. And he goes to his buddy Nathaniel. He says, hey, Nathaniel, I think I'm following the Messiah. I think I found the Messiah. And Nathaniel gets all excited. He says, really? Where's he from? He goes, well, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel actually says, Nazareth? What good has ever come out of Nazareth? And that is the way God works. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it's the same way. Most genealogies, they never even include the name of women. The, ge the genealogy of Jesus, they talk about Rahab. Who is Rahab, you might ask? She was a prostitute in Jericho who helped the Jewish spies defeat the city of Jericho. That's the kind of person that's in Jesus' genealogy. Sarah, what, what other kind of people does God use? Sarah was 90 years old. She was barren. She could never have a child through her whole life. Not only that, she was past childbearing age. That's who God uses in the genealogy. What about the men? David, he was a shepherd. He had, he had older brothers that were big and good looking and, and accomplished. And God says, no, I'm going to choose the shepherd. All he's done is sat out in the field and never accomplished anything in the world. And he becomes the king and commits adultery and murder. And that's who's in the genealogy of Jesus. These are the kinds of people God always works in a way you don't expect. And you say, well, that's great. God likes an underdog. It's more than that, folks. God is pointing to his plan for salvation. How he is going to accomplish this redemption that he predicted way back with Eve. How is the groaning going to end? And this is what he planned. You see, I've talked to a lot of people probably hundreds that I've shared my faith with and had discussions with. I've actually gone door to door with other churches doing surveys of, of what people think. And many times I've asked this question. If you were to die today and go to heaven, and God said, why should I let you in my heaven, what would you answer? And what I hear over and over, most frequently, is something along the lines, well, 
I'd tell him I was basically a good person. I'd tell him that I've done more good than bad. You see, that's the same kind of mindset the Jews had. The Jews believed that these hyper-religious guys, the guys who had memorized the Torah, the Pharisees and the scribes, those were going to be the guys to get into heaven. And they despised Jesus. You know why? Because the people he hung around with. And who did he hang around with? It's, It's laid out for us in the Bible. He hung around with the con men and the thieves and the hookers and the tax collectors, the people called sinners. And what we find out is that people who are used to achieving everything by their own abilities, those tend to be the people that have the hardest time bowing the knee to this king. That was me. This was me when I was 37 years old and and far from God and an atheist. And and I said, no, I'm a good enough person. And, And you see, we tend to think that you know, we've accomplished a lot. We all have a resume, and, and we're going to show God our resume. By, go, by golly, I got to where I am through my own hard work and self-discipline. That's how I'm going to get to God, through my self-discipline, by being good. And God says, no, you cannot be good enough. You know, a few months ago, I, I talked about a lady named Carla Faye Tucker, and you may, may remember her story. Grew up in a broken home. By 14, she was a heroin addict. By 15, she was a, a prostitute. And by 25, she literally, she and her boyfriend murdered two people with a pickaxe. And on death row, she studied and she became a Christian. She put her faith in Jesus. And around the world, there was outrage. Oh, yeah, another death row conviction. What a sham. Of course she's going to God. These are the kind of people that understand they can never be good enough. That's the gospel, folks. You see, after Jesus' crucifixion, he rose from the dead. And these 12 guys, these timid 12 guys, they exploded around the world. Every other religion says, oh, there's a guy, Buddha, or a guy, Muhammad. He's figured out, if you follow these steps, you can make your way to God. That's not good news. That's not good news because I know I can never be good enough. What the Christian faith says is just the opposite. It says you can never be good enough. His standard is perfection. When you commit cosmic treason, when you betray the king, when you turn your back on the king and become a traitor, God told us beforehand what the consequences are. The consequences are death. But God loved us enough that a little little over 2,000 years ago, He sent the Messiah, the Messiah who comes, lives a perfect life that we couldn't live, dies and takes our punishment, rises from the dead, defeating death, and all we have to do is put our faith in him, and we are made right with God. And that's what those apostles exploded around the world, saying, that's why it's called the gospel, it's good news, it's been done, it's accomplished, you don't have to do it yourself. But what it takes, folks, is a humility to accept that you can't be good enough. That's what this is all about. The idea that God works in an upside-down way. In the kingdom of God, 
you want to be great, you must be the servant of all. If you want to be first, you must be last. And one of the great little essays that, that encapsulate this, I want you to reflect on during this time of Advent. And maybe you'll get closer to understanding of God and this groaning that we've all been going through and how he's going to bring it to an end. And it's called One Solitary Life. And it goes like this. And it's about Jesus. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30 and public opinion turned against him. He never wrote a book. He never had an office. He never went to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of those things, usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when his friends betrayed him. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today Jesus is a central figure of the human race. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. I've been a Christian 27 years now. That's the God I love. That's that's the God I've gotten to know. I I still have this longing. I, I groan. I want to be with him. I want to know him more fully. That kind of humility and strength and love is who I want to be with forever. Do you, do you feel that groaning? A little over 2,000 years ago, God came to earth. I'm anticipating that event over the next three weeks because I know it was the first step in the process of making me right with God. And now that I'm his son, I know that when he comes to take me home, the groaning will finally end. Let's pray. Father, forgive me my incredible arrogance. What what humility you have always displayed and you do work in ways that seem so counterintuitive to me. But Father, I want to know you better. I want to live more often in the light than in the dark. And Father, give me strength and perseverance to live well in this period of groaning, in this period of the pains of childbirth until you come and take me home. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.